This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we welcome Dr. Sarah Hammond. She's an ornithologist who will give the naturalist lecture next Tuesday at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's titled, A Little Bird Told Me, The Art of Interpreting the Behaviors of Birds. So if you've ever wanted to know what the birds outside your window were saying this morning, then this is the show for you. And as always, Dr. Major's here, ready for some pet questions, and also we'll give some final tips on keeping your pet's mouth healthy as we wrap up National Pet Dental Health Month. You can join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or email the show it's animals at mpbonline.org uh, creature comforts repeats every saturday morning at six if you ever happen to miss uh, the thursday morning broadcast so good morning hope everyone is doing well this morning good morning good, good morning uh, libby you've got a lot of events that you want to tell us about so we'll I start do. with that let's see and um here are a few from the Gulf Coast. Um, Earth Day Bio Blitz is going to happen. This is we got a, you've got some warning on this Saturday, April the twenty eighth at the Bethel Mountain Bike Trail in DeSoto National Forest. And um, I think those are always fun. If somebody really wants to get some hands on science, uh, you're go prepared to help because you're expected to go out and help. But you'll have an expert there that'll teach you how to count certain number of a kind of plants or identify birds or trees or insects or so it's um there a bio blitz basically means you try to inventory everything that's living around you in a short length of time so it's a real fun thing to do and then over at past christiane at the library so this is another this is an indoor set down one uh, March the 9th, that's Saturday, from 10 to 12, Monarchs, Milkweed, and Nectar Plants. And Amy Nichols, who knows a lot about Monarchs and Milkweed, will give you the latest information about that. So that's another Gulf Coast good one. And then at the Natural Science uh, Museum, you mentioned we'll we'll learn more about the lecture uh, this coming Tuesday, March the 5th. Mm-hmm. There's um and lectures sound so formal, but they're they're really fun talks. But uh, naturalists talk about um, that Sarah Hammond is going to do about conversations in the woods that are going on that we can become a part of. And then uh, March the ninth, that the follow that'll be the next Friday, a week from tomorrow, will be what they call Science Makers, and it's one of my favorite days at the museum. From nine to twelve, scientists will come from all over the state to talk about what they do and to talk to children about it. And there's a an emphasis on female scientists and telling girls about. About fun science, so I'll probably be over there that Friday morning. Lots of people I know will, and it's it's a fun thing to do, particularly if you know somebody homeschooling, mm-hmm. or a Girl Scout troop, or um, a teacher that um, can get out of school and go because it is you know nine to twelve on a Friday, and then uh, next Saturday, a week from this Saturday, March the ninth, is the big Fossil Road Show. Oh boy, that's a big is, one. Yeah. You know, so I'll, I may be at the museum 
Friday and Saturday because <laughs> that one is too much fun. And then there's Ocean Bound exhibit going on there, too. All right. And all the Audubon chapters have birding trips coming up the next few weeks. So just remember that, you know, if you go to audubon.org and then click on Mississippi, you can find all kinds of cool stuff. All right. Very good. Uh, so we're going to be talking today with our guest, uh, Sarah Hammond, about uh, uh, the behaviors of birds. So if you have a question about bird behavior, bird communication, give us a call. Also, Dr. Major is here, ready to take your pet questions. Uh, and we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can send an email as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Scott's on the line. We'll get to that call in just a minute. But Dr. Major, we've been talking throughout the month about uh, February being National Dental Pet Dental Health Month. Um, so as we wrap up the month on this final day, maybe if you could boil it down and give us uh, maybe kind of your top two tips, two things to keep in mind when it comes to keeping our pets' mouths healthy. Great point, and this should be a every every month. It's not just this month. And the real thing is to look at your pet's mouth, uh, open their mouth, smell the smell the mouth if you can, and look at those teeth. Uh, they may be perfectly perfectly pristine white, but in general, most of our pets do start to build up tartar and plaque. There are things that you can do. Uh, I, if you start early, a lot of dogs can have their teeth brushed, and there's nothing uh, nothing wrong with that if you can do it. Uh, some dogs will not tolerate it, and very few cats will tolerate having their teeth brushed. But uh, the food that you feed does have some influence. However, a big portion of uh, dental uh, problems are genetic in a lot of cases. Uh, the... Regular dental checkups are good. I recommend uh, having your dog checked uh, twice a year. Uh, just really, dog or cat, check twice a year. And let your vet look at the teeth. I would say that, dare say that 40 to 50% of all the dogs that, and cats that we check probably are in need of some form of dental care. There are some treats that will help, uh, and that's good if that pet will eat them. Uh, some of them have an enzyme which will help prevent plaque buildup or and tartar. So these these are just things, common sense, I guess, in a way. But we should make every every month a dental care month for our pets. A lot of times we don't know they have a problem until they stop eating or act like their mouth is hurting. And uh, certainly at that point, you re- they really need some help. I think my favorite takeaway for the month was when we talked, I think, last week about the um, the flavored toothpaste for dogs being like liver and the, the chance that you you might somehow mess up and, and try to clean your teeth with liver-flavored toothpaste. Uh, so that would certainly be a shock in the morning for most people, I think. I think they may have some fish and uh, poultry as well. <laughs> All right. <and> then, <laughs> Whatever you might so desire. Toothpaste. I can right. smell that now. Let's, let's, let's keep it away from your, your toothpaste. <laughs> All right, uh, we have an email to share here, but first we do have an early caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Scott, who's called in from Moss Point. Scott, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, Father, uh, uh, ornithologist, I, I know you're a linguist, but uh, I wanted you to comment on the fact that we've had, and I know it's not particularly rare, but I've had roseate spoonbills all winter in Moss Point, and I saw a pear fly yesterday. And I don't know where else they may be in the state, but I wanted you to comment on that. 
Oh, good morning. Um, I'm really excited to be on this morning. So thank you so much. And thanks for the call, um, Scott. I, I mean, I feel like that's that's pretty unusual to see spoonbills this time of year, although they are moving, you know, moving across the state. That's your opinion, yes, Libby? Yeah, um, I know they're at St. Catherine's Creek, but usually, well, everything's a little early this year, yeah. though, isn't it? It yeah, is. I would say March usually, but um, that's, yeah. And I've been seeing your posts on Miss Bird, haven't I, Scott, I think, talking about your Rosiette Spoonbills. Uh, do we lose? Yeah, I think Scott yeah, hung he, up. He, but, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, but that's a great bird to see. Oh, yeah, And I would bird. encourage anybody listening that, that has a way to get out. You might, uh, oh, gosh, uh, it's just a wonderful bird to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Typically, I know along the Mississippi River you're going to see them, but along the Pascagoula too, yeah. And maybe with the flooding, you know, the flooding might be causing them to move different places that we don't usually see them at this time of year. Sarah, tell us, what, what does a spoonbill look like? Well, they're, they have a beautiful pinkish kind of, I mean, I feel like it's almost fluorescent color and a very long, you know, the name is from the very long bill that, that protrudes and really looks like a spoon. My kids are like, look, I mean, they, that's, it's just an obvious, my four-year-old and six-year-old can identify spoon bills of anything. And they're roseate. So that's where their the name comes from, roseate spoon bill. They're a real, real lovely uh, peachy pink color. And every now and then we would have somebody say, I've seen flamingos. And right. It's, it's unbelievable <laughs> that I saw this big pink bird because they are almost as big as a flamingo. And uh, they can look like that, so it's pretty incredible when you see. Do them. they do they get their uh, roseate color from same thing with crustaceans, just like the flamingo? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yes, Good. crawdads around here, right? <laughs> okay. And they do nest in Mississippi, right? I don't I think don't, so. I, that's I think a question I had. Yeah. Florida is where okay. I think our birds go to nest. Somebody okay. ought to call me and correct right. me if I'm wrong on that. There's that. so plenty of people out there that know a lot more about it than I do, but. Yeah, and um, where I've seen them the most is along the Mississippi River, and they'll be perched up in a tree, which is pretty cool because it's a big bird up there. And sometimes I always tend to associate them with wood storks, those same types of habitats. Am I right about that? That's that's where I've seen them, yeah. Oxbows. I believe they may nest in uh, parts of Louisiana and Texas along the coast. I'll bet Louisiana, Texas, yeah. So there may be nesting on the coast that I don't know about, but... I know people that have gone to see them nesting in Florida. All right, let's get one email in before our first break, and this comes from Scott, who says he's a regular listener, usually catching the Saturday morning repeat. Uh, He says, I've watched some fascinating videos online about the jewel wasp and the way it lays its egg on the body of a paralyzed cockroach. Then when the wasp larva hatches, it goes right to work enjoying its birthday feast by chewing its way into the cockroach's body. Now, if someone were to chew its way into my body cavity, I would certainly not survive that. So I wonder, how does the cockroach stay alive while the larval wasp feasts on it? Like we commented before, not happily. I'm sure this is just the worst science fiction kind of event, but it's true. I suspect the larva grows fairly rapidly, uh, plenty to eat there. Uh, I did a quick research. I don't think we have them in the U.S. Basically, they're in Asia. Uh, They introduced them to Hawaii for pest control, and it didn't work out very well. Of course, a lot of things have been introduced to Hawaii that didn't work out well. 
But uh, apparently they have a very limited range. They don't just multiply and go all over. They're beautiful little wasps, though. All right. Uh, and as I said, uh, and if you're overrun with cockroaches, yeah. I'm sure you're glad to see that beautiful little wasp. But I don't like to think about what the cockroach may be enduring. Oh. We hope it's a short time, right, Troy? Thank you for that. I think yeah. it'd be short. Good. Yeah. But you're right. That certainly sounds like a science fiction movie for sure. But apparently, the uh, little wasp knows exactly where to inject some venom, uh, and uh, I don't know if the cockroach actually continues to it may it may be subdued for quite a while after that it it, it actually injects the venom in one of the nerve ganglions hmm. and uh subdues it where it can lay its uh eggs thus the larva he and, may not you know, feel a thing then the we roach do a may not more feel research on yeah. the, uh, well if actual, you're, you're going to lay yeah. your eggs on something and you know eventually eat it then it's nice that you inject <laughs> yeah. the poison into where yeah. i like to think that the cockroach has just gone into a deep sleep and doesn't feel a thing okay there we go but you know we do have a lot of other uh, uh wasp type insects that do the same thing and they take prey back to their burrow uh where the larval would uh develop there Ignumid wasps, don't they? Yeah. Lay on caterpillars. Right. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's part of nature, part yeah. of how yeah. things survive. It's like that old show, that's why they call them animals. All right, it's time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion with ornithologist Dr. Sarah Hammond. We'll talk about the language of birds, the difference between a song and a call, and much more. If you have a pet question for Dr. Major or a bird question, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 During the break, play along with our game and guess the bird by its sound. We'll do this throughout the show. So here's your first one. We'll give you the correct answer after the break. Listen up and stay tuned. to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today in studio, we're visiting with ornithologist Dr. Sarah Hammond. If you'd like to join our conversation with a question or a comment, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email the show as well. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Now, Java, you've created a little bit of a, a stir here in the studio. We, uh, and when we have a, a talk about creatures, we sometimes play sounds uh, associated with them. So if you would, replay the first bird sound uh, that you played for us on the break. All right. And, Java, you're saying that that is... That is a uh, uh, a colony of rosette spoonbills. No. Um, I'm, I'm coming from the Audubon.org website. I didn't mean to stir up a fuss <laughs> this morning, but uh, that's what it has. And it uh, under the description, it has uh, sounds at colony, uh, low croaks and clucking sounds. So, yeah. like Dr. Major said, it, it may have been a, a group 
and they were maybe disturbed or something. All right. Well, you stumped the panel there on that first one, though. So, uh, but that was so that were the spoonbills uh, that we uh, talked about in our first caller uh, mentioned as well. Uh, we've got some phone lines of calls on the phone line, but let's learn a little bit about uh, our guest first. Uh, first of all, Sarah, thanks again for joining us. If you would uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, be here, and I will just say I'm actually not an ornithologist, okay. so I can answer some of these questions, but <laughs> colony of Spoonbill, I did hear the, the gulls in the background, but um, anyway, uh, I my, my background is in biology, but I started out, one of my first experiences with bird behavior was after I had, I had an English degree, so I didn't have any formal naturalist training, but I saw a lecture about bird language from a fellow named John Young, who is one of the uh, foremost kind of researchers on bird on bird language and bird behavior. And he wrote a book called What the Robin Knows. Great book. If anybody's interested in bird language, this is a super book. A lot of stories, kind of anecdotes from his life. He studied with um, indigenous people and, in fact, still travels to Africa once a year to study with the Bushmen, who are master trackers, master uh, bird language practitioners, and you know they do that because otherwise they will get eaten by large cats or large predators. They have to pay attention to what is going on in the forest for their own survival. And so I saw this presentation about this language of the forest and how to understand what was going on just by listening, and it really just it just changed my life. I decided to become uh, more a biologist, naturalist, and I studied there in Washington State at the Wilderness Awareness School uh, in a residential program where I learned uh, not only bird language but also this idea of nature connection and um, really getting to know the wildlife that's around you and you know in your backyard. So that's a lot of what of what bird language is as well as it's it's paying attention to these these birds and the animals and the stories of what's going on just right here where we live. And it's anybody can do it, everybody can do it. It's one of those things that we used to have to do for our survival and we don't really have to do that anymore. So we're just paying attention attention to um, patterns on the landscape and vocalizations that birds and other animals make. And am I correct that you work w- with the Clinton Nature Center? Yes, thank you. I've I've been over there for almost two years now, and um, we in in fact we've been doing a bird language type. We haven't done a, f- a formal event yet, but we're partnering with the Jackson Audubon Society and have been doing bird language programs over there and a lot of nature connection programs. And um, I'd, I'd love to tell you about a couple, if this is a good time for that. Sure, go ahead. So, um, yes, we have um, coming up, you know, the, if, you, if you haven't been out to the Nature Center, it's, it's a beautiful place in the heart of Clinton, just three or so miles of trails. We have folks over there, Dr. Stark, who's put a lot of energy into restoring this natural habitat. It was a dairy farm at one point. And so um, we've really, and because of my background in, in nature connection, we're really trying to get people out, get them outside, get them out on the land, doing events where they can um, come and experience the forest and, and the animals and plants that are native to Mississippi. So we have a, we have a workshop coming up uh, for anybody interested. It's, it's called Wild Green Thumbs, and it's about native plants, but from a very experiential perspective. So we're going to be 
really hands-on. We're going to go out and collect native plants that are out in the forest. We're going to make things from them, teas and salves and uh, edibles and medicinals. So we're, we're just using um, some mentoring practices, hands-on, authentic learning to help people really connect with their surroundings. And that's really what bird language is as well. It's just and, a tool for that. When is that going to happen? Okay, that's March 23rd. Mm-hmm. And you can go on our Facebook page, the Clinton Community Nature Center Facebook page, has our most up-to-date calendar and events. And this is for, so this workshop's for formal and informal educators, but really for anybody who just wants to deepen their connection with plants. Okay. It'd be a lot of fun. We've got some phone calls to get to. Let's start in Beaumont. Our friend Sue is on the line. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I want to give you a secondhand nature observation, animal observation. I was talking to a lady at the store. We live in the arms, wrapped in the arms of the Leaf River down here at McLean. Mm Mm-hmm. And every time it floods, the water all backs up and everything floods and the swamps and low places get flooded. And she swears she saw a river a river otter crossing the road get from one patch of water to the next. And and I said, what she described sounded like a beaver to me, but she said she knows the difference and it was an otter. Are there any otters? Yes. <laughs> I saw one on the Leaf River years ago. Get out. Yes. And... Uh, of course, that was when I was in school down there, so that was 40 years ago. <laughs> but, yes, so I assume that there are still some there, and I have heard of other people seeing them through the years, so hopefully she did. Somebody got a great little mm-hmm. video right behind the Natural Science Museum here in the middle of Jackson yeah. of a river otter. It, they, they're they around. They're pretty secretive, and it's to their advantage to not let people see them a lot, but... Yes, so you need to get out there and try to find it, too. <laughs> well, thank you. All okay. right, Sue, good to hear from you. Let's uh, move on next. We've got a call from Steve in Mobile. Steve, go ahead, please. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, go ahead. Um, I've, one thing about the river otters, we have them. I, I live in Pensacola in Mobile and go back and forth, and we have many river otters here. And the most common traces you can find on the uh, their tracks on the riverbanks in the early morning before they've uh, been disturbed. So, Thanks, um, Steve, yeah. Two, uh, two completely unrelated questions. Um, the first, I joined late, and I believe you were talking about brushing dogs' teeth. And mm-hmm. my question, first question is this. I've, I've got a uh, rescue dog that has horrible, horrible breath, and, uh, and we've not been, you know, we've adopted her, and I've not been able to do anything to clear her breath up. And so um, along those lines, if you can offer any suggestions. And the second question is, and, and I love that uh, the doctor, I forget her, I missed her name, sorry, but uh, that you specialize in, in ornithology and, and bird sounds. Several years ago, uh, I remember a uh, recording that was uh, hopefully of an ivory bill woodpecker that they had gotten up in Arkansas um, in the search for that, for, for that bird. And I was wondering if you're aware of any any progress or, or any new developments regarding trying to find an ivory bill. Um, and I don't need to stay on the line. I'll just hang up and let you guys go. Thank All you. right. Thanks for the call, Steve. Uh, let's uh, talk about the ivory bill woodpecker first. So I, I haven't seen any new developments in that in about maybe four years. I had some friends. So I did my master's degree with the... Uh, lab of Ornithology at Southern Miss, the Migratory Bird Lab. And I had a couple of of, uh, graduate student friends who worked with Cornell, and they did extensive searches in Arkansas of the, um, I'm trying to remember, the White River, White River Bottom, and, and where some of those recordings were taken. And 
to my understanding, they did not unearth anything new. And so it's been a while since I've heard anything yeah. about it. Any of y'all? I know that um, it, we had some friends at Auburn that also worked on the same projects. There were never confirmed sightings. There were lots of hopeful sounds, but nothing was ever confirmed in, in, Louis, in Arkansas or what, there were some people were looking in Louisiana and in South Alabama and Florida, and I don't, nothing was ever confirmed. But I haven't heard anything. I'm sure there are people still looking, though. Right. right and Java, I think, has the sound of the... Yes. That's the ivory bill. It sounds so much like the pili- arpilliated, though. If you just heard that in, out in your yard, I mean, we have a couple, we have a pileated pair, a pileated yeah. woodpecker pair in my yard, and... They sound so similar. Yeah. Uh, and Dr. Major, again, we talked about uh, Tet Dental Health Month, and uh, Steve was saying that, you know, just breath, bad breath, and I guess that would be the time maybe to, to bring the dog in to the vet. Right. There's usually a cause for bad breath now. Sometimes dogs are not quite as reserved as we are, and they'll pass gas both ends, but <laughs> primarily they can, from their stomach, can give a pretty bad odor. However, usually uh, odor is a tip-off that there is something going on with the teeth. My suggestion to him would be to look at the teeth, actually pick up the gums, look at the teeth. Mm -hmm. And if there is substantial tartar and plaque there, I would see your vet and possibly set up a dental uh, prophylactic-type situation there. And then after that, uh, brushing the teeth, using chews, there's one called Oravet, there's dental treats uh, that are you can feed your dog, uh, not as the entire diet, but certainly you can feed them that. And these things are designed to help prevent tartar buildup. So I would suggest the first thing to do is look at those teeth, and probably the source of odor is coming from uh, tar- tartar plaque and thus infection around the teeth. So would uh, tartar show up as discoloration, dark spots? How would you notice Usually it? It first starts out being kind of yellowish uh, to brown on the teeth. Uh, if you think about this, it starts at the gum line, and then you get buildup. We see some uh, plaque a lot of times that you can hardly identify the tooth. It's so much of it's built up. And uh, certainly in that stage, the tooth is in danger of possibly losing. And, of course, with the... And buildup of the tartar and plaque, the gum line recedes. You get a root that does not have enamel. It's not. It's exposed then, and then you get degeneration and possibly will lose that tooth. I mean, that's similar to dental health in humans as well. Is that the, very, very similar? Yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, let's uh, do this. Let's take a quick break. Bill is on the line. Bill from Greenville. If you hold on, we'll get to your call first after this break. We are taking another break. Still time for you to call in. Uh, to visit with us this morning at one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So during the break, try to guess the bird you're about to hear. Java, our producer, will play the bird call, and when we get back, we'll give you the correct answer. Listen up and stay tuned.
Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. We're visiting today with naturalist Dr. Sarah Hammond, and we're talking about bird calls, bird behavior, uh, looking for some pet questions as well. And always, if you've had a brush with wildlife that you'd like to share with us, you can call in as well. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, during the break, we played another bird call. And Java, if you could remind us of what we heard. Now, to me, that sounds like it's either laughing or sort of in, in pain. Uh, but, uh, sir, we double checked on that one, and we all agree that that is. Wood duck. The wood duck, right. All right. And you, you hear one real close and one far away, so they're saying, I'm over here, I'm over here, don't you think? Or either they're uh, saying, this is my territory. Call. Right, and com- we can talk yeah. about this in a minute because it's something maybe we can we can um, try out. So, like, with, with bird language, we're listening for the difference between bird alarms and bird baseline. So baseline's going to be their song, their companion call, any their their preening, their feeding noises versus what we're really looking for is alarm. We are looking for I'm threatened, my family is threatened, and that's going to tell us what type of predator is out on the landscape. Okay. So, All right, uh, we'll continue on that. We've got some calls to get to as well. Bill's held on for us through the break, so we'll go to him first. Bill from Greenville, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I got two questions about bird. But first, uh, did you play the Avery-billed woodpecker just a moment ago before the uh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, there's a bird around here that I, as a woodpecker that I hear, sounds very similar to it. He's uh, got speckles on it, and he's got a, a, a reddish mark on his head. It's a very common bird, but you know, the uh, the the sound is just a little bit different. But uh, Anyway, I've, I've got a problem with, with uh, I feed my birds up on the fence. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, I, got, I don't use a bird feeder for, because they don't seem to like them. And so the, the, the seed just gets all bad in there. So I put birds, I put the seed up on the fence. And I haven't had much too much trouble lately. I get a lot of starlings and uh, these English sparrows coming along. And they just push the cardinals right out. Probably knock them off the fence. They just eat everything. They just uh, swallow it like crazy. And then they leave, and then the cardinals don't get nothing to eat, or the other little shy birds. And, uh, you know, it gets pretty expensive when you Mm -hmm. put out two or three times. You know, they don't come. So I was wondering, how can I try to get my birds to come to the feeders? I bought a bunch of feeders. Well, they just don't seem to like them. I don't know why. Did you get a cylinder feeder that um, it's like a, a long, thin, like a column that the little birds have to cling on? I've had better luck with that. For um, You can see more chickadees and tufted tip mice and uh, Carolina wrens, those kind of things oh, come to those feeders that... Um, that the big birds can't, they can't really cling on them as well, I guess, is the idea of those. But the cardinal, it's hard to take care of the cardinal without feeding the um, the starlings and things, too. Well, I, I bought an assortment of feeders. Some of them very expensive. They had them at Walmart. Some of them, like, about $40 reduced mm-hmm. to 10 And the 20 was reduced to about 4 or 5 They're mostly long columns. 
Yeah, and that's they got the squirrel mm-hmm. protection thing on there. What did you put in them? What, what did you put? Uh, what kind of seed? Black oil sunflower. Okay, seed. yeah, that's good. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would put that up again and try it, and it it, it mm-hmm. matters. It, what time of year you're doing it, and sometimes even what week. If there's a lot of natural food, that's what you want them to eat anyway, I guess. So they'll, they may be at another food source for time. So yeah. I would try those bird feeders again, particularly the, the, the cylinders that hang that have the, the squirrel protector. That's harder for those larger birds like the starlings to cling on and eat out of. It gives the little birds a little bit more advantage. So you might try that. All right, uh, Bill, we appreciate your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Let's go next to uh, Bert, who's called in from Indianola today. Good morning, Bert. You're on the air with us. Morning. I had a question about the otter, but real quick on the dog halitosis. Our dog requires a uh, a non-mammal meat source, so we're using a lot of fish. Well, we're probably just going to be stuck with bad breath. <laughs> probably so. I think you get, you okay. know, I guess the question is, does the dog consider it bad breath? We we would, I know. and uh, But, yes, probably if you're using the fish base, I think you will get that smell. Certainly. Yeah, thank you. Um, um, I see, I travel a lot and see, uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of roadkill. Uh, what do I look for in a difference in an otter and a nutrient? Oh, when when one's in that situation, it might be a little bit harder to tell. An otter is a, a longer, thinner, and a nutria is shorter, fatter, rounder looking. Tail is but different. Tail. Yeah, and the tail would be different. Rat-like. Yeah. Oh, oh. A nutria is going to look like a rat, a, a, a bare tail, and a, a, an otter will have you know, have more hair on his tail. It won't be like okay. a, a like a possum tail or something. It won't look Propor- like that. Proportionally longer. Yeah. Smaller head okay, in proportion, you. yeah. All right, Bert. Thanks for calling in this yeah. morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question or comment this morning, you can join our conversation by calling one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven Six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Sarah, you were telling us the difference between uh, alarm and baseline. And so, does the alarm call differ based on what the uh, what the predator nearby is? Yes, absolutely. And and probably your the most common um, experience you've had with this, and our, I'm sure many of our listeners have had, is is just mobbing behavior. So, in Mississippi, we have a lot of snakes that eat eat birds, eat bird eggs, and you'll commonly have a number of different species of birds that'll come around kind of what we call as a parabola shape. And they'll they'll just you know, that's an alarm sound. And squirrels and so, so you'll have what we call shapes of alarm, and that's going to tell you what the predator possibly could be. So if you've got this, you know, uh, I had an experience going up to a uh, giant red cedar kind of in the open one time, and I was looking at a huge red cedar, and you could just h- see all these different birds focusing their attention into the center of this tree. So it really looked like a big bubble. 
And I walked up into it and knew there was something in there that was threatening them. And there's a barred owl in the center of the tree. So the, that mobbing could be a could be a could be a snake in the springtime. It could be a jay or a crow that's looking for a nice egg snack. So yes, yeah, so they make different they make different shapes based on who they are. Um, one a good story that I had uh, experience. I was on the Buffalo River and was with with a group of campers and. We were actually getting ready to do some bird language, and there's a. We were at a campsite, and there's a pretty large swath of forest, and on the other side of that is the Buffalo River, and there's a little trail that runs through it. And I was talking, going on about bird language, and I hear this dip, 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 kind of off to my left, and then right next to that, dip, 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 and then and then right to the next place. So kind of coming in a line, but 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 popping up about alarms about my head height. And it just keeps coming. It comes by us, and then it gets right in front of us. And I tell all the campers, I'm like, stop, listen. We put our deer ears on to listen. We put our hands behind our ears. And, and listen, we hear this, boop, 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 and it's moving. Like the, the, the birds, do, 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 moving across in front of us. And I know where this trail is going to pop out. And so I say, a dog is going to pop out at the end of this trail. Everybody look over here in three, <laughs> two, one and out pops this golden retriever <laughs> dragging uh, its leash. So it had gotten free from its owner and it was moving along this trail at a pretty good clip. And you could hear the, the shape of alarm. This is canines make what's called a popcorn alarm. Birds aren't real bothered by foxes, by coyotes. You know, that, that's not really one of their worst predators. And so they're, all they're going to do is just fly up high enough to alarm and stay out of the way. And the idea of bird languages is that they're spreading this distance warning signal across the landscape. And that's what we, my kids are like, what? How did you know that? And I was like, this is what I'm telling you, bird language. You just have to listen and you'll see these shapes and they appear. So every, otters, great example, great bird language predator, because when otters are in the water, like at the buffalo, we saw some otters come and swimming by and you really don't hear any alarms. But as soon as they reach the bank, birds, I mean, of all variety come down and start alarming at them. So they're a really, they're one that's really hard to put a shape on because they're so, even sometimes when they're playing, they won't be ag as aggressively attacked as when they're hunting. So it depends on not only what the predator is, but what it's doing. Your house cat. Is it just kind of bopping around in your yard or is it coming out to stalk one of your birds from your feeder? And I'm sure our listeners have had this experience where you start to hear the, the birds fly off from the feeder or they start to get alarmed and you look around the corner and here comes your house cat. Mm -hmm. So, yes, so there's a lot of, of shapes that you're looking for can tell you what's going on. Our callers, what was that, Steve, that said they, they weren't using his bird feeders? I started right. to say something mm -hmm. then. It could be that the fence is a little further or a little higher from a pet that the birds are a little nervous about. So mm -hmm. that's possible. If you check out what's around your it bird could, feeder. Could, could be a hawk in the area. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, let's do this. Let's take our final break this hour. We'll also get our final bird call. We're visiting today with naturalist Dr. Sarah Hammond. We've been talking about bird behavior. We're also taking some pet questions. So give us a call if you want to join the conversation. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Let's see what Java's picked out for us with this bird call. We'll be back with more after this. Stay tuned. <laughs>
can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And we're visiting today in studio with our guest, Dr. Sarah Hammond. She's a naturalist uh, that works at the the Clinton Nature Center, is also our guest today. She's been talking about uh, bird behavior in advance of her lecture next Tuesday at the Natural Science Museum titled, A Little Bird Told Me, The Art of Interpreting the Behaviors of Birds. So we had one final bird call this hour, and Java, if you'll let, let us hear that again. one's a little bit difficult to hear even. And we've determined that that one is the black Black pole warbler. (laughs) But you would not hear it sing in Mississippi because they they pass through pretty quick, don't they? Okay. So they're transitory birds for Mississippi? Yeah, they wouldn't nest here. Okay. And I think that's a good point, too, about, about looking at bird language is that, you know, that, that's a high canopy warbler. So you're going to, and it's very high pitched out of the range of a lot of people that are even, my husband's always like, I cannot hear that bird. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. But so when we're, when we're out practicing bird language, one thing you want to look for is birds that are always here. So what are our most common birds and birds that are often on the ground? Because you think if an otter's coming through, you want a bird that's not up in the canopy. They're not going to alarm over an otter coming through. You want to look at birds that are going to be down, you know, the in the thick of things. Or, uh, Toey, even cardinals, or, you know, cardinals will go back and forth. Wood thrush this time, you know, in the in when they're here is a super uh, bird alarm bird. Uh, wrens. Uh, titmice, they've done some amazing research with titmice. Um, a lady down in Florida found that titmice actually act like, um, they, they call them crossing guards. Like they will send out alarms to tell birds when it is okay to cross certain areas. Like, mm-hmm. it, to, you know, they do Peter, 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 Peter. So this is, means Peter, Peter once means okay to go. Peter, Peter two times means, whoa, don't go. Hold <laughs> up, wait. Um, so we're looking for common birds. Our birds, birds that are here year round and that are loud. All right. The titmouse is kind of bossy, too. So You can yeah, picture that, can't you? That. Yeah, they're in charge. Yeah. Right. A little bitty bird with a real loud voice. Right. And you can identify them because they have the little stripe there like yeah. a, a uh-huh. crossing guard would totally. have. So. Yeah. Okay. Oh, they got their little hats on. <laughs> <laughs> on. Yeah. Uh, Kathleen, our friend from Osaka, has been holding on for us. Good morning, Kathleen. You're on the air with us. Oh, I'm so glad to be able to call today just to hear... This is radio. This is a really good show, and the quality of your guests, again, Kevin, are great. I'm asking a cat question right now, but I, I'm going to get off quick because I want to hear this lady. Um, I'm having trouble with the cats, trying to get them to – I can't brush their teeth. That's out of it. How do you do that for a cat without wrestling an alligator? Okay, very difficult. Uh, a lot of cats will not let you brush your teeth. If you started at an early age, kittens, quite possibly you could do it. But I'd say probably one out of eight cats will let you brush your teeth. And, uh, you know. Are there any treats or something I can get that will help them with their teeth? There are some dental treats. Uh, You'll have to either go online or check with your vet. But there are some dental treats that the cats will eat and they can crunch. And it will help some of the tartar. Some of those are treated with an enzyme 
that would help prevent the buildup. Cats are okay. much more difficult to, to brush and to treat that than dogs. Tell me, I came out with battle scars. And <laughs> the littlest cat, you wouldn't believe, day and night, Dr. Jekyll, you know. Well, six anyway, pa- a six-pound cat that wants to uh, hurt you can. Yeah, well, I got one that's 23 pounds. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get off. I want to hear this lady. This is really, really hits home for me, and I love this show. Thank All right. you. Good to uh, hear from you, Kathleen. Always glad to hear from you this morning. Um, so, uh, Sarah, we've done, what's the difference between a call and a song? So there's a I think it kind of, at least in bird language context, we're going back to whether the bird is is relaxed and is um, doing its basic, you know, just just basic day to day activity or whether it is threatened. And this is probably the biggest challenge with with that I had when I first started paying attention to bird vocalizations is is what is the difference between a song like what Java's playing? We can we can really hear the melodic quality of that it's just it's like music it's pretty relaxed peter peter thank you titmouse <laughs> see i can get the ones I, i'm okay with um, titmouse. Uh, so so that's its song it's call um it sounds a lot like a wren uh good and a chickadee so combination chickadee ddd Thank you. Awesome. Great. That was on time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Right. So you're asking about song and call. So song and call. Think about calls are I'm connecting with my neighbor or my mate. So uh, we call those companion calls. Toeys are great with this. They'll actually scratch the leaves and make a little noise saying, I'm over here. Uh, where are you? Oh, I'm over here. Everything's okay. I'm okay over here. Do, 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 do. It's kind of a back and forth. Do, do, do. And then one of them will uh, choke on something they're eating and be quiet for a minute. And the one's like, do, 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 do. where are you? Are you okay? Do, 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 do. <laughs> and so it sounds a little bit like an alarm, but it's really not. It's just basic day to day goings on for the bird. But when, so what, when we're looking, when we're going out and we're watching birds and we're paying attention to their behavior, we're alarm, it, and it might not actually just be individual birds. We also want to pay attention to the whole area that we're in to determine whether it's in alarm or whether it's in a calm baseline state. But when you're seeing, like, you know, mama's angry, you're looking at fretted bird brow, pointing your beak in the direction of the issue, or, or the worst that just makes my skin crawl is, is silence. So when you're in the forest and you're hearing no alarms, no contact calls anymore, no singing, you most likely have a a major bird predator like an occipiter, our Cooper's hawks, our Sharpshin hawks, and they will actually call calls a shape of alarm that we call an oppression. And it, I mean, and it's visible on the landscape. You can think of it as like a big a big pillow almost. On the outsides of that, you'll have birds in in baseline. So they'll be singing, they'll be feeding, they'll be preening. And inside that, I've actually taken kids out at the Nature Center. We have a portion of the old Natchez Trace on our property. And there's a Cooper's hawk that lives over there. And when it's sitting there, whether it's feeding or not, it's it's just dead silent. On a day like today, well, maybe yesterday, when you've got birds everywhere singing, doing their thing, looking for mates... This spot, it's dead silent. And you can walk 50 feet and hear birds singing. So you've passed through this, this zone of oppression. So that's what we're looking for, these, these disturbances um, that indicate that the area is in alarm or in baseline. 
Um, <clears throat> when I, I walk in the park in Pearl most afternoons, and there are some geese that are in the pond there. And it's interesting to me is I've, and I've been trying to catch them because they make such a huge noise when they take off in their little groups there. And I've been trying to catch them with my camera phone and have yet to. But it seems like right before they fly off, they start honking at each other. And I'm wondering, is that kind of them saying, hey, everybody, get ready. We're about to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, with geese, they take turns being the leader. Mm-hmm. And so it's probably somebody saying, okay, it's my turn to lead off and we're getting ready to get up. Or is everybody okay? Is everybody here? They're saying something like that. You know, there's intra-species where they're talking to each other like that within a species. But I think kind of a new thing for people to study is inter-species communication because squirrels and insects even get into these alarm call things and they listen to each other, which I think is such a cool thing. You've got a community of species there and we can be one of them. You know, Sarah is so funny. She's talked about she would go out and give alarms and then (laughs) birds would answer her back. So she's got her own alarm call. All right, so about out of time, just one time to remind you that uh, it's next Tuesday, I think, right, your lecture at the museum, uh, the Museum of Natural Science, Dr. Sarah Hammond, and it is titled, "The A Little Bird Told Me, The Art of Interpreting the Behavior of Birds. So if you're and interested, at noon. it's yeah. at noon uh, next Tuesday at the museum that's located in Jackson. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Casting Think Radio, funded provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Sarah Hammond, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker, followed by Southern Remedy at 11. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.